happy? We can go home now? Actually, no. I still have a task to perform. Okay. So on your Bible, Simon. Oh, Simon's gone. Here you go. He's got his notes. He's got the Bible. He's ready to go. All you need now is a pen. And the answer's on the screen. And then you'll be complete. Okay, just a quick recap. We're on Galatians. This is week two. And as it happens, this is Galatians chapter two. Don't get excited. It's not going to be five weeks, because six weeks, there are six chapters. It's going to be longer than that. But just to quickly recall some of what we covered last week, in chapter one, Paul drives straight in to confront a growing concern. Could you believe there was a challenge, an issue in the church? Surely not. A bump in the road. No. What was happening is that false teachers were trying to lure particularly the impressionable new converts from grace back into law and back into legalism. We're in kids' church. We give those nasty false teachers a boo. But we're not, so we won't. Okay, so in order to do this, Paul starts to to launch a, a staunch challenge. And he launches a defense of, first of all, his apostleship, And then secondly, as we covered last week, the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, in chapter 2, Paul continues that defense, and he adds a little bit of detail. And in fact, if I had to summarize Galatians, uh, the whole book, in in one line, it would be this. The first two chapters are are, are personal, and then chapters 3 and 4 are doctrine. And then chapters 5 and 6 are the practical outworkings of that doctrine. That's often the pattern of Paul's letters, actually. So we're going to cover much or most of chapter 2 today. And I'm going to start by reading a few verses, uh, just to get the old juices uh, turning. Galatians 2, can't say it. Chapter 1, no, chapter 2, verse 1. It's been long there already. Then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. And while I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. And even that question came up only because of some so-called believers there, false ones really, who were secretly bought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. Now Titus, Titus was an uncircumcised Greek. So he's presented to the church in Jerusalem, if you like, as Paul's test case. Would the, would the church bigwigs require him to be circumcised before they would accept him 
or not? Should the Gentile Christians be required to be circumcised or not? Actually, that, that didn't really matter that much at first because almost all the early Christians in Jerusalem, as you can imagine, were Jews. So all the males would have been circumcised, circumcised already. But as soon as, as, as non-Jews started getting saved and started joining church communities, the circumcision questions started to surface. The good news here as we read is that the apostles passed the test. Verse 3, and they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Verse 6, and the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. See, for, for the Jews, circumcision wasn't just a matter of keeping a part of the law of, of Moses, albeit a significant part. Circumcision was, was a sign of membership of God's covenant family. And it was a big deal for them. Particularly, nudge, nudge, wink, 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 wink a big deal for non-Jews who were going to be forced to convert to Judaism. It would have been a big deal. But actually, circumcision had become a key marker. It was a marker of, of Israel's racial and cultural and religious identity. For a Jewish man, circumcision spoke not just of who you were yourself, but who else belonged in your group, in your tribe, like in your ethnic family. So why was this so important? Why does, does Paul dive head in to confront this? And why had this issue arisen so forcibly as we read last week? And I'm going to propose three reasons that we're going to work our way through today as they unfold in Galatians chapter 2. The first one is, it was vital right at the outset to determine or to classify who qualified as a true believer and who didn't, number one. Number two, actually circumcision was just the tip of the iceberg. And number three, actually the unity of the early church, and by extrapolation the subsequent church, was at stake here. So firstly, did, did a Gentile convert Christians have to become Jewish in order to qualify as a true believer? Number one. Number two, as, as we'll see in a minute in, in verses 11 through 14, the question of, of how Jewish do they need to be actually spilt over into every other detail of the law. In this case, in Galatians 2, that, that those ceremonial cleaning and, and eating laws. Would those Jews sit down to eat with those unclean Gentiles? And then the third point, you know, we're going to have to come to agreement about this, or the church as a whole will inevitably split into factions. Gentiles, the Jews, and the ones in the middle. What we're going to do is we're going to take just a few minutes 
looking at each of these as we work our way through the chapter. So number one, this whole issue that Paul is confronted at which circumcision was right at the core was vital in determining who qualified as a true believer. So verse four, even that question, which is whether Titus should be circumcised, came up only because of some so-called believers there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. This is the whole issue that this letter is written to uh, confront. Verse 5, but we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message that we talked about last week for you. See, at stake here, verse 5, was the very truth of the gospel. Verse 3, the very freedom that they now had in Christ was up for debate. It said that they wanted to enslave us. They wanted to force us to follow their Jewish regulations. You see, the false teachers had a strong and legalistic view of what a real Christian looks like. What they had to do, how they should behave, the rules that they had to follow. But here's the good news. The good news is we are free. We are free from ritual and we're free from regulation and we're free from religious compliance. We're not free from the importance of holiness. We're not free from the pursuit of godliness. We're not free from our obligation to love as Jesus loved. But we are free from the obligations of the Old Testament Mosaic law. We are free from timetabled rituals. We're free from the kind of guilt and shame and manipulation that comes when we feel we fail to live up to the perceived expectations of others, particularly the religious ones. Am I doing it right? What, what do they think of me? Is God cross with me? And we're also free from other people being able to dictate to us how we should worship and how we should serve. Here's the good news. Instead, we have been released into the expression of our own relationship with the Lord, led by his spirit, not led by someone else's opinion or someone else's preference or someone else's agenda. Now, of course, that there, are, there are many biblical principles. We still have Jesus' teaching and Jesus' example we still have all the gospel imperatives. But the gospel is all about grace. It's through grace. It's empowered by grace, which is extremely liberating. And do you know what makes the whole thing attainable? Part of the, the, the idea of law it was to prove that it was utterly impossible for us to earn salvation for us to be righteous in God's sight. 
So for us, you know, this distinction, I think, rolls over into two facets. It rolls over into our personal Christian walk, and it also rolls into our, our corporate church life. And it comes down to, is it grace? Or has it slipped back in to law and legalism? Is it grace? Or is it legalism? As I said, that that applies for you in your personal life, in your personal walk with the Lord. Is it about grace? Or is it about legalism? And it also spills over into our corporate life. Do we make it grace or has it spilt back into legalism? Let me break that down a little bit further. In your personal life, is it grace or is it legalism? Let me ask it like this. Are you, Tree said it last week, hosting, are you kind to yourself? Or have you given yourself a whole bunch of rules to follow? Or are you drawing from God's grace at every turn. The point is, it's so easy for our Christianity, our expression of our relationship with God, to become legalistic. And therefore, it becomes oppressive rather than joyful. And then secondly, in that, in that, in that corporate church life context, as we worship God together, as we serve God together, have we created a culture of grace? Please say yes. Please say yes. Have we created a culture of grace or, or do, we, do we instead tend to construct frameworks and rules and regulations that, that to all intents and purposes just drag us right back under law? Tim Keller, I told you I was reading Tim Keller. Tim Keller says, if you raise your traditions to the place of non-negotiables, you essentially create a system of legalism. And you are saying real Christians do things this way. Now, the extreme form of that has been called heavy shepherding. And if you know what that is, this little piece is for you. If you don't, stay blissfully ignorant because you're not going to experience any of that here. But the point is, is in the end, rules and regulation just produce fear and bondage. Second part of verse 4, they sneaked into us and take away the freedom we have in Christ. How? by imposing all these rules and rituals and regulations and obligations. Take away the freedom we have in Christ to, to live out our gifting and our calling and, and our relationship with the Holy Spirit. They wanted to enslave us and force us, manipulate us, control us, seduce us to following their Jewish regulations. You see... In regulating or controlling what happens on the outside, you hurt and enslave people on the inside. And they get crushed. You might get 
compliance, but you won't get fruitfulness. It's infinitely better to allow and to release grace to do its beautiful work on the inside and to allow that then to shape and to lead what happens on the outside. And if that, in a nutshell, is the difference between legalism and grace. Second one, circumcision was just the tip of the iceberg. I promise you, verse 11 to 14, here they are. When Peter came to Antioch, that was in the region of Galatia, I had to oppose him to his face. What he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. Here we are. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, the religious sect, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish law and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions which were manifold and endless, actually? Not only did we have the law as written, and have you read Leviticus? But they'd also written the law upon the law to explain the law after the law. This this issue provided two problems for the Jews, the eating issue. First of all, they'd grown up with, with a set of strict ceremonial laws classifying what was considered clean and unclean. The idea being that, that to approach God, to, to, be accepted, to be acceptable in worship, the Jew had to be ceremonially clean. We know that this foreshadowed the blood of Jesus. We know that. You know, there was a whole list of foods you couldn't eat. Leviticus chapter 11. There was a whole list of, of things that you couldn't touch. You couldn't touch dead bodies. I mean, who'd want to? You couldn't touch dead bodies. You couldn't touch lepers or skin diseases. There, there were various other things that, that made you temporarily unclean. And so there were a whole bunch of laws and rituals and regulations into all of that contained in the Mosaic law. But you know what? Jesus had taught, and you can read about this in Mark chapter 7, Jesus had taught that the time for those laws had passed. And actually, Peter himself had had a vision to that effect in Acts chapter 10. Remember that whole Cornelius incident. So firstly, they'd grown up being inundated by these laws of clean and unclean. And the second problem they had was that the Gentiles didn't do any of this so they were considered decidedly unclean. And here's the problem. Though Peter had, up to this point, been happily sitting down at the table and eating with the Gentiles, he backtracked because of the pressure that he'd been placed under. Dare I say that Peter had a history of caving to pressure, as we know. And to make it even worse, 
others were now starting to follow Peter's example. I mean, he was the biggest wig of all the wigs. Even Barnabas, in fact, it said, had been led astray. And you know, for Paul, this was a great problem. The reason it was a great problem is this was the start of a drift. So it needed to be brought into the open before they woke up one day and the whole thing had become radically legalistic. Why? Because, again, circumcision was just the tip of the iceberg. You know, we know that all the cleanliness laws, all, all the ceremonial laws, all, all the feasts and all the fasts had been fulfilled by Jesus. We have been saved into gospel freedom. And the point is, that was at stake right here. If they opened the door to circumcision, they were opening the door to endless other rules and rituals. And before you know it, Christianity was just going to be a sect of Judaism and people would just be bound up and legalistic as the Pharisees of Jesus' day had been. Reminds me of a wonderful passage that will come in a few weeks' time. Galatians 5 verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen. Stand, here's the warning. Stand firm then. And do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ you've fallen away from grace. And the point is, if it could get even the great apostle Peter, everyone was at risk. The Judaizer uses the word sneaking. They were working hard behind the scenes. They were scheming, they were lecturing, they were lobbying. And you know what, if it had not been for Paul's bold and courageous stand, the willingness to confront Peter publicly, things might have been markedly different. Which leads to the third one. The third thing at stake, it was the unity of the early church and, and by extension, the unity of, of the subsequent church. Going back to verse 1. 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas and Titus came along too. If you remember, last time Paul told us about his first visit uh, to Jerusalem in chapter 1. Verse 2, then, I, I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to Gentiles. Here's the key line. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. So the Lord had clearly told Paul to go to Jerusalem again. Why? To make sure he was in agreement with, with the apostles, the, the pillars of the church. This wasn't because Paul himself was, was in any doubt. He was rock solid. It was more out of a fear, verse 2, that the apostles in Jerusalem might not be, be being true to that gospel? Were they standing up to the false teachers? 
Or were they allowing their, their religious traditions, their, their cultural prejudices to cloud the truth or, or to dilute the truth? Or, or in, in Paul's case, the Peter's case, to compromise the truth. So the point is, is that as well as the gospel being at stake, church unity was at stake. You see, siding with or, or even tolerating this false teaching would have split the church. Again, fortunately, the apostles passed the test. Verse 9, in fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift that God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. The ESV verse 9 says, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas, to Barnabas and me. And so having been given this, this right hand of fellowship, Paul left with what he came for. He left with agreement. He left with a renewed sense of commission. He left knowing that he had their support in his mission to continue to reach the Gentile nations. And the moral out of that is that unity in the church is a beautiful and a powerful thing. It's something that must be cultivated. It's something that must be guarded, which is what Paul is doing here. It's something that must be celebrated, even if it takes work. You see, unity is hugely attractive to believers and unbelievers alike. When I hear the word attract, I think of a magnet in that physics experiment you did when you were eight, where you have the magnet, you turn the other one the other way around, and they just, they just repel each other. But if you get the right pole in, facing in the right direction, they go, and they're attracted to one another. And for me, unity is like that. You can tell when you're in a place that has unity, and it's beautiful, and it is attractive. If you step into a house, into a conversation where there is disunity, you know straight away, you can sense it in the atmosphere, and it is, to use the magnet coin phrase, repulsive. So unity is hugely attractive. Number two, unity is a safe place where Christians can grow and Christians can flourish. Yes, please, Lord, let me have that. Let's have that. And thirdly, and perhaps more importantly than all of that, is unity is a fertile soil where God can move. I think Paul knew that. If disunity was allowed to winkle and work its way in and the false teachers were sneaking, then you'd start getting all these weeds and all these thorns appearing in the gospel garden and it would cease to bear fruit. Here's the psalm you all know, Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head. You know what oil represents? Precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard. He was the high priest, down on the collar of his robe. It was as if the dew of Hermon, you know what water represents? The dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord. For there the Lord bestows his blessing. There, that place of unity is where the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. And we see here that anointing and blessing are powerfully and inextricably tied to the unity of God's people. 
Therefore, we must make every effort to cultivate unity. John 17, 23, Jesus said, May they experience that the church, this is great high priestly prayer, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know. It's that attraction part. So the world may know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Ephesians 4, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Just quickly, before we close, what is unity and what is not unity? What unity is and what unity isn't? So, so uni unity does not mean that everyone has to conform to you. Everyone has to be just like you. That everyone has to like what you like or see what you see. Equally, unity does not mean that you have to conform your behavior to everyone else's expectation. So to fit a, a, a predefined formula or to comply with a perceived stereotype. You know, unity doesn't mean that we will always agree. Oh. I mean, I use joke. I don't always agree with myself all the time. There's an illustration. I love the illustration. You might have heard before. I've certainly shared it before. Of, of closed hand and open hand doctrine. You familiar with that idea? You know, there are certain things that are non-negotiable in my closed hand. I'm going to fight for these. This is the true gospel. This is, this is, this is what Jesus taught. This is what the, the apostles wrote in their epistles. This is, this is the stuff. And then there's the open hand, which is some of the other sort of more fringe doctrines that, frankly, there are quite a few different opinions on out there. And I'll say this. I am not going to fall out with you on whether you pray in tongues or not. I'm not going to fall out with you on tithing. I'm not going to fall out with you on your end time doctrine. I'm not going to fall out with you about your preferred Bible translation. Have you ever met a King James Version only person? That's scary. Point is, we're not going to fall out. Those open hand issues, we're not going to fall out over those. But hang, having said that, if, if, we, if you start talking about a different way to be saved, if your description of God doesn't match mine, if you start ignoring Scripture or neglecting Scripture or corrupting Scripture, then we might have a problem. Because those are closed-hand issues. You know, other than that, we can have beautiful Christian unity. Another thing that unity doesn't mean, unity doesn't mean we all have to do it the same. You know, we're going to have different distinctives. We're going to have different perspectives and, and priorities. We have different callings. Do you know what? This is exactly how God has designed it. You know, we see it here with, with Peter being sent to the Jews and Paul being sent to the Gentiles. We know, we understand that, that one person, 1 Corinthians 12, one person's a hand, another's a foot, another person's a mouth, another one's an ear, another one's an eye, another one's a belly button. That wasn't in my notes. I don't know why I said that. It doesn't mean we all have to be the same. Unity does mean this. 
It means we worship the same Lord, same as Jesus. It means we lift up one voice. It means we share the same purpose. It means we walk in love with one another, always full of grace. That's what unity means. In Galatians 2, Galatians 1 and 2 terms, it means that we accept as a brother or sister anyone and everyone who is in Christ. And we do so without, without putting external constraints or religious hoops and hurdles in their path. And it means we do so without, holding, without withholding grace if certain conditions and certain regulations that we fear are appropriate are not met. Here's what unity does mean. Unity means recognize, recognizing and celebrating the fact that we do all have different gifts and we do all have different callings. Again, Peter sent to the Jews, Paul sent to the Gentiles. In our case, it may be that one loves to worship and another to witness. One loves to pray and another to preach. One of the lines my brother uses often is, it takes more than one church to win a city. You know, there are, there are many people who are, who, are, who are adept at ministering in different ways, in, in different contexts, to, to different people. We need that. This, this diversity is good and it is divinely intended. But unity means that we celebrate and we embrace that. The final point, really. Unity will be a product of grace. You see, legalism produces fear, and it produces an imposed hierarchy. It produces pride. It, it produces resentment. And all of those things are enemies of unity. Grace, however, produces kindness, and it produces patience and it produces positivity. Grace feeds acceptance and confidence and creativity. And here's the key line, I think. It will take grace to navigate the inevitable differences of opinion and preference and priority that exist in any church family. It's going to take grace. That's why the number one value on the list is Always full of grace, our Kilgan culture, because we're going to need it because we are different. And every now and again, we do rub up against each other, one another. There's a little bit of friction. Every now and again, those poles do oppose each other. That is where grace is absolutely vital. But you know what? The unity that that produces is well worth it. Okay, we've reached response time. Just uh, as, as I ponder this, two questions, I think, sort of jump out to me. The first question is this. Look me in the eyes, everyone. Are you kind to yourself? Are you kind to yourself? I'm talking about your Christian life here. Are you kind to yourself? Are, are, are you bowing under the weight of all those Christian rules and regulations that you've either imposed upon yourself or allowed others to impose upon you. 
And again, this is a theme that weaves all the way through the book of Galatians. We are a long way from being finished with this, and it is going to get better and better. But I tell you what, if we reach the end of Galatians chapter 6 in about however long it takes time, I just hope that everyone's a little kinder to themselves. So that's the first question. I encourage you to take that to the Lord and just ask him. We'll worship for a little bit in a minute. And just ask that question. Am I, what, what are the rules and regulations that I put upon myself? How have I allowed myself to think in terms of these? I mean, is your, is your devotion in the morning, is this an act of love? Because, hey, you want to be with Jesus. What a great way to start the day. Or is it a sense of, do you know what? If I don't, God's going to be cross with me. And my wife's going to know. And I'm going to know, and God's going to know, and he's going to be angry with me, and it's all going to go downhill from there, and it's going to be a disaster. Or is it because an expression of grace, I get to? Is it the sense of I have to? And I'll beat myself up if I don't. That's religion. Or is it I get to because I'm walking with God, and this is an expression of my, my relationship with him? And that's grace. So I'd encourage everyone to ask the first question, am I kind to myself? Incidentally, that will greatly increase your chance of being kind to the next person. So they're invested too. Question number one. And then question number two is how highly do you value unity? It is a question. Does your pride cling on to what grace could free you from? Powerful line. Does your pride cling on to what grace could you from? Here's another question. Do his purposes trump your preferences? How highly do you value unity with the person sitting next to you and the person on the other side of the room with your Christian brothers and sisters? Are you prepared to let things go? Are you prepared to be a person of grace? And the answer, of course, is yes and amen. But all of us have a battle with this. And so part of, of the response today, are you kind to yourself? The second part is, is, do I value that unity? Am I prepared to let my pride go? Am I prepared to embrace grace so I can walk arm in arm with my brothers and sisters? Because that's a powerful thing. That's a place where God commands the blessing. That's a fertile soil where God can move. Anyone besides me want God to move in this church? And, and to move in this area and to move in this land, absolutely. And unity is a very significant part of that. Right, um, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, if that's okay. Um, and what we'll do is we'll just take it into a time of, of response. We'll sing a song that's appropriate. I mean, ultimately, the answer to both those questions, am I kind to myself and how highly do I value Unity, the, the answer to both those questions is I need to grow in grace. And so I'd encourage you as we worship to, to ask God to teach you and to transform you and to fill you with 